<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about the nation that is reshaping the world. We are coming to you this week from Brooklyn, New York. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldhorn of the National Rifle Association. <laughs> How are you, Jeremy? Packing heat, man. <laughs> yeah. All right. China's economy, now the world's second largest, and despite its recent slowdown, still expected at some point to surpass the total size of the U.S. economy, is really something everyone needs to know about. Its fortunes touch lives from Maine to Malawi. And yet, despite how much conversation there is on the Chinese economy, whether in the, uh, in the U.S., where we're now hearing Donald Trump saying China is raping the United States, and many predicting a very hard landing, or even on the ground back in China where Kaiser and I have spent so much of our lives, it's often hard to get a firm grasp on the actual picture. How threatening is overcapacity or the local debt problem? Are we underestimating China's economic resilience or should we be preparing for the collapse long predicted in some especially bearish quarters? So today on Seneca, we're delighted to welcome back, welcome back, Arthur Krober, who in April published an excellent book that I cannot recommend highly enough. It's called China's Economy, What Everyone Needs to Know. Arthur is Managing Director of Gavcall Dragonomics, an independent global economic research firm and editor of its journal, China Economic Quarterly. Arthur, welcome back to Seneca. It is great to be back with you, gentlemen. Oh, great. So, uh, so Arthur, your approach to China's economy is markedly different, I would say, from uh, some of the other widely cited commentators. I have my own ideas as to uh, what those basic differences might be. Um, but I'd like to hear from you without necessarily naming names. Um, Michael Pettis. <laughs> um, <laughs> how you think your approach specifically differs. Well, I'd say the main difference that I have uh, in general with a lot of uh, people who write on the Chinese economy is I try to have a much more historical perspective on these things. Uh, I am not actually a trained economist. Uh, I have long had an interest in, in history and culture, and I kind of stumbled into uh, economics in China as a way of, as a lens through which to understand the, the ways that society is changing. Um, and I've, as I've gotten more and more deeply into this, I've, I've really had a difficulty with a lot of economic analysis, which ignores the kind of larger historical and, and social context of things. So what I tried to do in this book, which basically covers the entire period of Chinese economic reform since 1979, was to uh, present, obviously, an understanding of, of the economic facts, but, but really to situate them in a historical context. And I think if you take that broader view, uh, you wind up with a somewhat different uh, set of conclusions than than people who are looking at it from a more narrowly economic or financial perspective. Hmm. And then what strikes me about your book and what I think is both really useful and, and very refreshing about it is how often it really challenges what I think everyone thinks they know about China's economy. In fact, I mean, as Jeremy and I were prepping for this show, I, I suggested titling it, I think we will, 
Arthur Kroeber versus the conventional wisdom. So I think that's the approach we're going with. Um, let's throw some of the received wisdom at you and see what you have to say. So let's start with the very common belief that China is highly centralized, uh, not only in terms of uh, being centrally planned, but also in terms of Beijing's control over the provinces. Uh, you challenged that idea, Arthur. And I personally was very surprised to see that a whopping 85% of government spending is at the sub-national level. Yeah, this is one of the, and I actually, I learned uh, a little bit more about just how China is decentralized in, in the process of researching this book. And there were some things that I, I didn't know, even though I'd lived in China for uh, nearly 20 years. Um, but, you know, I, I think most people who spend a lot of time in China, and particularly if you spend a significant amount of time outside Beijing, uh, quickly understand that this is a state which is at the formal level, it is highly centralized, and there is a communist party that does attempt to get into every nook and cranny of the of the country and does exercise, in certain respects, a great deal of control. But informally, it's highly decentralized, and there's enormous amount of, of flexibility uh, that exists at, at local levels. And I think this is important for two reasons. Um, so first of all, I think a lot of analogies are drawn between China and other communist states, particularly the Soviet Union. And I think one of the, the central issues is, uh, from a Western point of view, is this question of how can you maintain a highly centralized communist political system with a dynamic capitalist economy? How can this mixture possibly last? And I think a lot of the sort of pessimistic view uh, or very pessimistic view takes the analogy of the Soviet Union to say, well, look, they tried it and it didn't work. And I think it's very important to understand that China has always been, even when Mao was running, it was always way more decentralized in terms of economic decision-making than the Soviet Union ever was. Uh, so I think that's that's an important element of the equation. I think the other point is that China is this, yeah, it's a weird combination of certain elements of a command economy where the party and the central government do have a lot of influence over things at the top level. And on the other hand, a very, very dynamic bottom-up private economy, which marches to the beat of its own drummer and is really in tension with it, that uh, centralization. So I think it's it's too simple to say that China is centralized or decentralized. It's both at the same time, and that's what makes it so interesting. So um, related to that, um, despite Xi Jinping's pronouncements at the third plenum of the 18th Party Com Congress about um, market forces, um, are we still in a situation where state-owned enterprises are advancing and the private sector is in retreat? I think Guojin uh, Mintui was the coinage used during the Hu Jintao era. Is that still happening? Well, again, this is one of these things where uh, <laughs> once you, you scrape beneath the, the slogan, life becomes very complicated. So the, the basic story of the Chinese economy from 1979 until quite recently was that you had a steady expansion of the role of the private sector private sector share of pretty much everything, employment, industrial production, investment, whatever, continued to rise, even though the state retained uh, very tight control over certain aspects of the so-called commanding heights of the economy. Uh, and you're right, uh, starting around 2008, 2009, people started talking about which means um, uh, the state sector advances. The state well. sector advancing and the private sector retreating. And the idea was that this tide of private sector expansion was being reversed. That was never really true because if you look at the data, you see that the private sector share of everything has continued to expand. But two things I think are important. First of all, since 2008, the rate 
at which the private sector role has expanded has been slowing down. So in other words, we had a very, very rapid advance of this of the private sector in particularly the late 90s to about 2008. It's still advancing, but at a much, much slower pace. And that, I think, is that's an important shift. Um, second point uh, would be that even though the private sector in aggregate is very, very large, it's highly fragmented. There are few really, really big uh, private firms. And so the concentration of power within the state sector is quite high. And then the final point, I think this is what you were getting at, Jeremy, is that under Xi Jinping, I think we have seen a real shift uh, in the top-level rhetoric um, and the top-level policy direction, much more explicitly in favor of a um, uh, a bigger state role in the economy. And I, and I would say that this is a, a clear dividing line between Xi Jinping and all of the previous leaders of China within the reform era who, to one degree or another, were explicitly tolerant of an expanded private sector role. That seems not so much to be the case now. Hmm. Uh, one of the, the, the things that I really enjoyed about the book was that you really do march through the whole history of the reform period and, and how it was that, that China a- achieved the economic prowess that it now enjoys, although it is slacking. And, and you know, conventional wisdom has all sorts of ideas about how this actually happened. And one of the things you often hear is that it was you know built essentially through a policy of mercantilism through outright theft of, of, of intellectual property and, and, and all that sort of stuff. How much truth of, uh, is there to that, that conventional, that received wisdom? And if oh, those aren't the factors, you know, what would you say are the main reasons for China's double-digit growth? Yeah. Them? Well, yeah. So that, obviously, that's one of the big themes that I deal with. And, and I think the fact is that, you know, there is some truth uh, to that those assertions. But I think where, if you will, the conventional wisdom gets it wrong is that there's something weird or unusual about China's uh, reliance on on, uh, uh, mercantilism. Um, And then I think the other thing that the conventional wisdom misses is just the other sort of special sets of factors that are involved. So uh, my basic uh, thesis is that um, a lot of what China did was basically just copied from a well-established development playbook, um, which uh, actually started in the United States of America. Uh, one of the things that you don't learn typically as a student in an American elementary or high school is that in the early 20th century, uh, the United States had a a very strong state-led development ethos. It was called the American system. It was developed by people like Alexander Hamilton and Henry Clay. Uh, it involved a lot of state activity, which much of which involved things like seizure of land from its native owners and so forth. Uh, it also involved extraordinarily high tariffs and intellectual property theft. Um, uh, the United States was one of the most notorious uh, uh, pirates of intellectual property from Europe uh, th- through much of the 19th century. Uh, and we kept, really until uh, World War II, we kept one of the highest tariff rates in the world, protecting our domestic industries so that we could build up giant export uh, uh, positions. And uh, there was a, a guy called Friedrich List, uh, Friedrich List, who was a German uh, economist uh, in the mid-19th century, who came and looked at this and said, hmm, this is a pretty good idea. Let's take this back to Germany. And essentially, Bismarck's whole program for developing Germany was copied from the American system. 
Japan, when it opened up in the uh, uh, late 1860s, sent a delegation of people around the world to see what's the best way to industrialize really, really quickly. They went to Germany and they said, oh, this looks like it's working really well. Let's try that. And so the Japanese development model in the late 19th, early 20th centuries was copied from the list program. And then after World War II, they extended it and Japan, uh, Taiwan and Korea picked it up. And the basic idea is that you, um, you, you basically have a, a financial system that is either owned by the state or, or, or directed by the state that can capture the savings from a, an efficient agricultural sector. It's important to have an efficient agricultural sector as a starting point. And then the state-directed financial institutions plow this into infrastructure, education, these basic enabling uh, tools, and they promote uh, export-oriented manufacturing. And the reality is that you cannot find a single example of a country that's gone from being poor to being one of the rich countries in the world that has not followed this playbook. It's the only one that we know works. So when the Chinese came along in the early 1980s, they looked around and said, okay, what works? And what works was this, um, return land to the tiller, uh, because when you have a lot of labor, you get the most productivity out of land if it's individually owned rather than in big plantations, generate a big agricultural surplus, capture that surplus in uh, your state-owned financial system, have the state-owned financial system invest in heavy industry, infrastructure, education, and so forth, and then do everything you can to promote export-oriented manufacturing. It's a very old recipe. A lot of countries have used it. Uh, it's extraordinarily successful. And the only th unusual thing about China is that they're, A, the most recent, and B, the biggest country to employ this recipe, uh, which is why it's had such a huge impact. But there's, it's really nothing, nothing new. What about uh, tariff? The tariff regime in China. Um, my understanding of it is that it was actually, I mean, compared to the others who followed that same recipe, that uh, protectionism was was relatively light in China. Well, there's some ways in which that's true, and I think there are two. If you look at the, you know, so so the way the model that I've described is sometimes called in the in the uh, development literature, it's called the East Asian developmental state, and this was a term that was coined in the 80s to describe basically what post-war right. Japan, Korea, and Taiwan did and why they grew so fast, right? And my argument is essentially that China is takes a lot of the East Asian developmental state model, but there are two big, big differences. Uh, one is foreign direct investment. So Japan, Korea, and Taiwan post-war had almost no foreign companies operating domestically. They had very high walls um, and it was domestic companies that led the charge. China, famously in the 1980s, started out by in opening the door to foreign investors into places like Shenzhen and so forth uh, and kick-starting their export manufacturing industries that way. Very, very unusual. So at the peak in the 90s, China is about 15% of China's fixed investment each year came from foreign direct investment, which is extraordinarily high. Mm. The other big difference, obviously, was that China was a post-communist country, so it had a huge state-owned enterprise sector, which Japan, Korea, and Taiwan did not. Japan instead had the Koretsu system. and Japan had the Koretsu system. Korea actually did have some state-owned enterprises, and Taiwan had a lot in the early, in the early days, but very quickly uh, transitioned out of that. Arthur, sorry, could I interrupt? Could yeah. you explain the Koretsu system? And Chables while you're at it. Uh, so I tell you what, why don't we come back to that in a second and just let me complete complete this thought because I think that is that is important. The, the, the key point that I wanted to make here simply is that 
just to address Kaiser, your question about the openness, right? Is that yeah, China was forced in a certain way to be much more open than most other developing countries. Um, and the question is why? Why were they so open to foreign direct investment? And why did they have this much more liberal trade regime? I think the the central answer to that was uh has to do with geopolitics. So when Korea, Japan, and Taiwan were developing in the 50s and 60s, they were part of the U.S. security network in the Pacific. Under the nuclear umbrella. They were under the umbrella, and there was basically a deal. And the deal was the U.S. said, okay, you will be our bulwarks against communism in the Pacific, and you will let us station zillions of troops. And we'll let you erect huge protectionist barriers. And you, and you can have total access to our markets, and you can just do whatever you need to do to get rich. And that was a good deal for those countries. When China came along, they couldn't get that deal because guess what? They were a communist country. And even if they were a tactical ally against the Soviet Union, there was still – that wasn't going to work. So they had to bring something else to the table that something else was, was an extraordinary level of market access. Uh, so that is a, an unusual and unique feature of the Chinese economy. Um, so on the, on the question of the Karetsu and the Chebol, this sort of gets into a whole other sort of set of issues, um, which is – the state-owned enterprises and the role that they play in the Chinese economy. Uh, and that's a very contentious issue, I think, increasingly so, as uh, these enterprises invest more and more internationally. And I think you can see the state-owned enterprise system in China as kind of like the counterpart of the Keretsu system in Japan and the Chebol system in, in Korea. Uh, so the Keretsu are basically a set of interlocking uh, enterprises that have cross shareholdings in one another, joined at the hip, or or joined, you know, as a node uh, with a with a bank. So in the Japanese system, you have a bank at the center. It's called the main bank, and then there are all of these other enterprises in all kinds of industries that have cross shareholdings with the banks. Um, Some examples of these are uh, so this would be like Mitsubishi sure. or uh, you know even even companies like uh, uh, Toyota and so forth. But the Mitsubishi, Sumitomo, some of the big trading houses typically uh, that were also involved in the whole swath of industries. Um, and the idea is that the companies get a long term you know shareholder and financier, and so you don't have to be prisoner of quarterly uh, sort of expectations. So you get more stable long term growth is the idea. Um, the Koreans had a similar system called Chebol, which are big, giant conglomerates. Generally family. And or, generally family owned, which is true of a lot of the Japanese uh, companies. Um, but I think the family influence in Japan, partly because of the, the aftermath of World War II, was, was deliberately reduced. Whereas in Korea, basically they were all kind of family owned. And the big difference between them and the Keiritsu is that the, the Korean government did not permit them to have banks as part of the equation. So you could be a conglomerate, you could have, you could be invested in 70 different industries, but you couldn't have a bank. And the reason for that was that the Korean government under Park Chung-hee in the 60s and 70s wanted to have ultimate control over these guys. And they felt that if, if they control, if the government controlled the finance and then the companies controlled the production, that would work. So you have these systems which create an ability for bureaucracies, industrial enterprises, and finance institutions to work together for development goals. And you know, basically in China, the state-owned enterprise system forms the is the same uh, performs the same function. So the upshot is that there is quite a bit of truth to it that they did follow that same 
mercantilist policy. There was a lot of IP theft. But this isn't unusual. This yeah, is, this everyone, is, this everyone is, does everyone it. And always... if you want to get rich, you have to do it. That's the point. So let's <laughs> let's get off our high horse and, and just accept that as, as a reality of uh, how the world works. People have often asked me, just sort of in, in layman's terms, what caused urban China to, to become as wealthy as it did quite suddenly? Why was suddenly everybody? And I, I've always said, well, it was the distribution of, of Danway housing, uh, how much of a factor was this? I mean, oh, I think the, that the was a huge creation factor. of a. Yeah. I think that was a huge factor in wealth creation, and it's a huge factor in one of the biggest social problems in China, which is uh, just the huge inequality that you have there. So, yeah, and I think this is this is really a key thing to understand not only sort of the dynamics of wealth, but also the dynamics of the Chinese housing market, which everyone you know needs to pay attention to because of its global impact. And, and that's my next question. But first I want to ask, is there a rural counterpart then to uh, to, to housing distribution? And is this really sort of the root of, of rural and urban inequality? Yeah, that's exactly it. So the, the point here is that um, in the through the 90s, most uh, urban housing was not on a market system. Most people got their, their apartment through their state-owned work unit. And they paid rent of a dollar a month or some, you know, uh, uh, you know, minimal fee for that. And then one of the great um, achievements of the Zhurongji premiership in the late '90s and early 2000s was essentially to privatize this market. And it was a step that was kind of similar to what Margaret Thatcher did in the 1980s with council housing in the UK, except on a gigantic scale. Um, so over the the space of um, five or six years, a vast majority of the state-owned enterprise housing in uh, urban China was sold to its occupants at well below any reasonable expectation of its market price. Um, so one way to think of this is that it was a huge wealth transfer from the state to the household sector. So let's say you had an apartment and the state said, well, you can buy this for $100 and probably will lend you the money so that you can buy it. Right. No one I know was unable to actually purchase when, when offered. Yeah, that's right. So there were a lot of there were a lot of schemes involved to to enable people actually to to come up with this money. Um, so you were able to buy this for a hundred dollars, and then five years later, when the lockup period ended, you could often sell it on the market for five or ten or fifteen times that. Or even if the if the house was demolished as part of redevelopment, you would. In most cities, you would get some kind of compensation for that, which was much, much higher than what you paid for it. So we did a calculation, my colleagues and I at Dragonomics did a calculation that the value of that capital transfer of state-owned housing from the state to the household sector was equivalent to about one-third of 2003 GDP. And 2003 was kind of when the lockups started ending. So just think of, if you imagine, one-third of GDP suddenly being thrown into the hands of, of the private sector uh, through real estate. This is what set off the huge real estate boom. So if you were sitting in urban China and you were able to get in on that deal, or even if you were able to buy a house in the market at a very early stage there, you did great. But and that in, the countryside, in the countryside, you're still not allowed to own your own house. The state still owns all land. They've been very resistant to doing that same deal for, for people in the countryside. So urban dwellers got this huge gift of wealth from the state 
and rural dwellers didn't. And that's why you have such great wealth in the cities and how it emerged so quickly. And that's why you have this gigantic gap between the cities and the countryside. And that, that date also would explain to me why I, I feel as I, I went to live in a hutong in the middle of uh, Dongcheng for a few years around that time. And I, I sometimes feel as it was like Rip Van Winkel when I went into that hutong, Beijing was still poor. And when I came outside, everybody was driving around in fancy cars and wearing Nike sneakers. Right. I remember that, that, that turning point for me. I'll, I'll never live it down. Like, yeah. So, about how asked. you went from being perceived as rich to being perceived as poor in the matter of you know, yeah, just so a few I think years. I'm like you guys in that, that I, as a Beijing resident, utterly failed to take advantage of this great real estate boom and never bought any property there, much to my undying regret. Um, but And I have less excuse because theoretically I was like, you know, You're supposed to be watching this I was shit, supposed Arthur. To be watching the 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 economy, and I just I didn't get it while it was going on. So let's talk about housing. Uh, I mean, the the uh, conventional wisdom once again uh, says that there's a housing bubble that between this and well, I mean, a plethora of other other problems. But let's let's, let's talk about the real estate market, but also about the local debt problem, um, and and more generally the, this notion that a collapse is imminent, or at least a hard landing that these are are inevitable. Uh, I, I do want to talk about you know uh, this the scenario that you're going to. Um, I, mean, I want to unpack this later on, uh, the, the the likely scenario that you're now forecasting. But first, let's let's talk about this sort of collapsist uh, okay. vision. So let's let's start with the the housing market because I think that's a lot of people t- pay attention to that, and there's a lot of confusion. and And I go back to the central point uh, that I made a, a minute ago, which is that. It's really crucial to understand that the whole housing boom in, in China started with this massive urban housing privatization. And the, the point is that you started out with a situation where urban uh, property was phenomenally undervalued uh, in the early 2000s. It was There had been no market for 50 years um, in urban land. And so the, the so-called land values were nothing close to what a true market value was. So for you had a period of several years in the early 2000s up until probably about 2008, 9, or 10, where you had very rapid escalation in housing prices. And most of that was just land and property prices catching up to the true market value. So you had a lot of people, you know, then saying, oh, it's a housing bubble. Oh, it's going to collapse. Um, and it never really happened. And I think, you know, uh, people misunderstood where this where all of this uh, price appreciation was coming from. Um, so, And I think that's still broadly the case if you're in Beijing or Shanghai or Shenzhen or a lot of the second-tier you know, wealthy cities on the coast. Um, yeah, you've had some excess building, but, but these are very wealthy cities. People want to live in them. There's rapidly in, you know, increasing immigration and demand. So yeah, pr- pr- housing prices are pretty high, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're in a bubble, right? I think the real problems started after uh, 2009 when you had a gigantic stimulus in response to the global financial crisis, and a lot of that stimulus went into housing investment, and a lot of that went into just willy-nilly building of housing in a lot of cities where, smaller cities where it made no sense. So pretty much if you go to any city in China, no matter what size, you will find uh, some vast housing developments on the outskirts of town, which sort of imply that the city thinks it's going to become the next Shanghai. And guess what? There's only one Shanghai in China, and those like other 500 cities that think they're going to be Shanghai are not. 
ever going to be Shanghai. So you did have a lot have a lot of overbuilding, and you do now have a situation where there is not in every city, but in in a bunch of particularly the smaller uh, cities, you know, excess inventory that will probably never be fully absorbed. Um, so it's it's a problem, but I think it's it's not it's a more sort of fragmented problem than often uh, people see as the case. The other thing I think that's really important to understand, uh, particularly for U.S. Uh, listeners, is that China has a lot of problems in the housing market, but the problems it has are not the problems of the U.S. housing market in the 2000s. Part of that is that it's not nearly as leveraged. Right. That's that's basically what it is. In the U.S., you had people buying houses for 5% down or 0% down on you know completely... Uh, you know, unrealistic valuations in China. Still, on av- the average down payment is is over forty percent. Uh, the legal minimum in most places is twenty. Uh, you don't see much uh, leverage in, in household balance sheets. So, there are definitely some issues in the Chinese housing market. And I think the housing construction has peaked forever and and will go down from here. Um, but the particular kinds of problems we had in the U.S. are not the kinds of problems that we see in. China. Hmm. A couple of years ago, uh, your colleague uh, Tom Tom Miller uh, was on our show, and he, you know he had written a book about urbanization. And, and and a quote that I remember from it really well was, "Yes, there are a lot of white elephants, but the Chinese metabolism is is high enough to digest a few white elephants in the boondoggle." So, I mean, do, you, do you sort of hold to that, or is yeah? This, and I think well, we so I think indigestion. I, I agree with that, but there's also a risk that we have to flag. Okay, so the the point about this is. For a long time, over 30 years, China was growing at 10% a year. Okay, now what does that mean? What that means is the economy doubles in size every seven years. And so what does that mean? Well, you look at, if, if you, at a given point in time, you look around, you think, okay, everything that I see here, this is the Chinese economy as I know it. Now I imagine that whole thing, a second one of that, which does not yet exist, popping up right next to it. And that's going to happen in the next seven years. Everything that I see now is going to be replicated within seven years. And when you have that kind of growth pattern, yes, you can absorb any number of white elephants. The problem that I see now is that logic is beginning to unravel because it's not you don't have growth at 10% anymore. You know, I think a sustainable growth rate, if they get all of the policy things right, is more in the neighborhood of you know five or five and a half percent over the next ten to fifteen years. That means that you are more than doubling the amount of time it takes to double the size of the economy. And then if you've been building and building and building on the assumption that you're going to grow by ten percent forever, and then suddenly you're not, you're growing by five. Then a lot of people are left holding a lot of bags, and that I think we are now at a, at, a, at a point where we have to start you know worrying about the consequences of that downshift in growth. So can we talk a little bit about local debt? I know it's a, it's related. This is another one of the things that we hear a lot of commentary about, that China is going to collapse under the weight of local debt. What, what is your take on, on well, this? Well, so I think the, the maybe a little bit of historical background in my views on this is, is, is in order here. So for years and years, people have been talking about debt problems in China since I came to China in 1991, right? Uh, there's always been a story China's going to collapse tomorrow because of either the debt is too big or because the too many of the debts are non-performing, right? And this idea has been wrong for a very, very long time, and I built a large part of my career by pointing out that this was wrong. Um, so we really are at the point now, though, where um, uh, 
the debt level is a significant concern, and we're probably about three or four years away from a from a day of reckoning um, on the debt problems if we if we don't see some significant changes. Um, but the um, I think the point I would make on the local government debt is yes, it's an issue. Uh, yes, the debt needs to be restructured, but even when you add in the local government liabilities, the total government debt in China is somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of GDP or maybe a little bit higher. That's combined central and local government uh, debts. And that's not a very high number. Uh, most The OECD average is about 100%. Um, and there are plenty of other developing countries like India and Brazil that have significantly higher levels. So I don't see government debt as really being the central problem. The central problem is state-owned enterprise debt. Corporate debt in China is now about 160% of GDP. That is way, way north of the average. Um, so, and, and if you look at debt levels in state enterprises and private enterprises, private companies in China have debt levels that are about the same relative to their balance sheets as companies in Germany. And it's not changing that much. So private companies seem to be managing their finances pretty well. State-owned enterprises in China, on average, have debt that's the same as companies in Portugal or Greece. And that is where the real debt problem in China uh, lies. And it's getting worse. And it's it's a serious problem. And so what happens if there's a day, day of reckoning? Those companies just don't have enough money to keep their operations going and pay their salaries. Well, what's the... I mean, well, can we yeah. think of SOEs essentially as a social program? I yeah. mean, in, in some ways. And we can. I, you know, I think it would be nice if we didn't have to. I mean, I, that was certainly back in the 1990s when we had a big, you know, SOE crisis and you know, there was 50% of GDP almost was tied up in non-performing loans to state-owned enterprises. In that era, it was very, very clear that a lot of the lending to state-owned enterprises was really just social transfers. Uh, they poured money into the SOEs. The SOEs pretended to employ people and, you know, paid them a, a small amount of money and housed them and so forth. It was really a social welfare transfer. And, and a lot of the SOE reforms of the late 90s were designed to stop the SOEs from being a social welfare program and turn them into real companies, right? So it would be a little bit dispiriting if after 20 years we were just back in the same place um, that we were uh, back in the late 90s. Um, so I think it's important to recognize that, yes, there there is kind of a social welfare component to state-owned enterprises, and that's something that they, you know, China really needs to get rid of, and they need to focus these companies on doing what companies should be doing, which is, you know, uh, generating uh, productive investments. Um so, yeah, I think the uh, the issue with the SOEs, I mean, to your question, Jer uh, Jeremy, what happens, it's not necessarily clear that anything happens because, of course, you have state-owned banks lending to state-owned enterprises, and everyone has some kind of a, an amorphous guarantee from the government at some level. So as long as everyone in the system is willing to keep pretending, this kind of system can go on for, for quite a long time. and. Um, the problem with that is, I think, essentially the problem, the trap that Japan fell into in the 1990s, which is that you had a bunch of companies that couldn't repay their debts, banks which were technically insolvent because if they actually called in their loans, they wouldn't be able to recover them. 
you uh, have a lot more the, to say about the government that to the, wanted to, to, to yeah. Japan in the 90s. And let's get to that in just a bit, because I, I do want to say that you have a whole sort of scenario. Yeah. Uh, and that, let's save that for, for the end of our, of our conversation today. Um, let's talk a little bit about corruption and economic growth. Uh, conventional wisdom, again, suggests that a corrupt society is going to suffer from flagging economic growth. So why has China been able to grow despite corruption? Uh, why is it that, you know, when you've, you've, you've got a highway project in India, one in Russia, and, you know, in India, everyone takes their cut and the highway never gets built. In Russia, everyone, you know, takes their cut and the highway doesn't get built. And, you know, the, the, the highway gets built in China. It might, might not right. have the right ratio of rebar or concrete, right. uh, but... Uh, yeah, but you do wind up with stuff at the end. Right. Yeah, this is actually one of the great mysteries, I think. It's not just conventional wisdom. There's a lot of very sound economic research that shows the higher your corruption, the lower your growth rate over time. And China is kind of an outlier. Um, why is this? Uh, it's a tough question to answer. Um, I, the answer that I came up with, um, which owes a lot to some great work that's been done by a guy called Andrew Wiedemann uh, at uh, Georgia Tech, uh, who has written a whole book about this yeah, topic. Yeah, the world's corruption expert. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's a really, it's his book is terrific, and it really, I think, is, is quite helpful in understanding how it works in China. Um, I, I think basically the story is that, first of all, corruption was a tool that was used in the 80s to get a communist bureaucracy on board with the idea of capitalist economic growth. I mean, basically, the problem that Deng Xiaoping faced in the 80s was he inherited this bureaucracy of people who had been brought up for their ideological correctness, and he wanted them to focus on economic growth. And so basically, the deal that was offered to government officials was, your job is to spur economic growth. We understand that as in this process of economic growth, you know, a little money may go missing here and there, and we're not going to inquire too deeply into where that money goes as long as you just like keep it you know at, at a reasonable level so he was essentially giving people skin in the game and as long as the general direction of government policy was to more openness more liberalization sort of more market forces um a lot of the corruption was essentially a side effect of these reform processes which were generally productive right um I think the problem that we now face is that in recent years, the corruption has become less a side effect of liberalizing economic reforms and more just downright stealing. Uh, and a lot of it is now construction-related, people just skimming off from construction contracts. And, you know, if you're building a lot of stuff that is economically productive in the long run, that, that's fine. But now China's built so much infrastructure that the returns, the economic returns on each new infrastructure project are a lot lower than they were five or 10 years ago. So the stealing becomes a much bigger problem because you're not getting paid off for that stealing and economic growth later. Yeah, it's always going to be measured against the marginal. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah right, exactly. Do you think there's also something in it that um, there is very little petty corruption in China, if you compare yes. it with a lot of African countries or India? I mean, you, you don't bribe traffic cops in China, whereas like my home country of South Africa, right. traffic cops will stop you and basically indicate that yeah. you, know, you, sh you can pay them off. No, I think, I think that's a huge, huge difference that the sort of like the, the basic level of social order that is guaranteed by the Communist Party in China uh, in terms of that kind of stuff is extremely high. And, you know, I think we all of us have a lot of problems with the Communist Party and the way that runs things. But 
um, I think you have to concede that one of the things that they do pretty well is is maintain that kind of basic level of order so that no, you don't have to bribe someone you know, at a street corner or to get your phone installed or any of this kind of stuff. And if you go through much of the rest of the developing world, even the so-called success stories like India, that level of petty corruption is incredibly high. And China really does not have that. And now we're talking about this sort of inverse correlation uh, a lot of people are pointing out, saying that that Xi's aggressive efforts to stamp out corruption are in fact a burden on growth, that it, there's disincentive for people to actually do things. Is, do you see any truth to that? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and, you know, we just get anecdotal stories all the time, you know, from companies that we talk to about how it's impossible to get any approvals done. No local official wants to, you know, sign off on any kind of new project or do anything innovative, um, uh, you know, because they're afraid of the consequences. And, you know, you look at the rate of private investment has been slowing in China for the last six years in a row. And there are a lot of factors involved in that. But clearly one of them, based on surveys of private business people and so forth, is just this climate of fear. Now, so the question is, okay, is this in the long run, is this a good thing or a bad thing? So I think the impetus behind the anti-corruption campaign is absolutely right. I think, so one of my basic sort of theses about the Chinese economy is that we are exiting a very long period of what I call capital mobilization, where basically the job was just to build a lot of infrastructure, build a lot of heavy industry, put in the foundations of modern economy. And when you're doing that, you know, as my colleague Tom said, you can absorb a lot of white elephants. You can tolerate a lot of corruption because the payoff, the long-run payoff and all the stuff that you're building is very high. But we're no longer in that phase. We're now in a phase where growth basically just has to come from productivity. You've built most of the stuff that you need. You're not going to get a higher return from infrastructure. You need to squeeze as much return out of your built environment as you can. And in that kind of environment, you can't absorb all the white elephants. You can't tolerate this level of corruption. You have to move to a more orderly, law-abiding law uh, kind of a place. So I think the anti-corruption campaign, to the extent that it's an effort to say, look, we just have to change the rules of the game because the old game, we can't play the old game anymore. That's fine. Uh, and I think it's, it's good to have a crackdown in corruption. And it, as you guys know from having lived there, I mean, the corruption in you know, the last four years had gotten to epic, gargantuan scale, and it was really, I think, corrosive of the whole social contract. So the price you pay for that is, okay, you're scaring some people into not making so many investments now. You know, Maybe that's just a price you have to pay, a little bit slower economic growth, no problem. I think the real concern I have about that is after this anti-corruption campaign is over, what do we have? Do we have a system in place that has a lower tolerance of corruption, or do we just have people living in fear of the the knock on their door, and that's that's a very very good question. Yeah, and I, you know, it seems like we don't really have a system; we just have fear, and that's you can't run a successful economy, you know, indefinitely in a climate. So far, that seems very much to be the case. Let's let's talk about consumption. Um, household spending accounts for a very low percentage of China's GDP, as I think many people, many of our listeners certainly know. Very very high savings rate in China, and that of course leads to again, very high levels of investment. And we all hear about Beijing's efforts to rebalance. How's that actually going? Well, so here I think I really have to slay one of the big uh, conventional wisdom things here, which is that there's been this narrative for years that 
there was something wrong with China's economy because it invested too much and it consumed too little and it was dangerously imbalanced. And I, I really just think that that way of looking at things was, was flat out wrong. If you look at every successful industrialization story, including the United States in the late 19th, early 20th century, these were all cases of unbalanced growth where you had a lot of investment, consumption was uh, 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 suppressed, and you had, during the intensive period of industrialization, the consumption rate fell. Because why? Because you were doing all of you were installing the capital of a modern economy. That was the story in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, uh, even in the United States, as far as we can tell, in you know pre pre depression. Countries get rich through a period of capital intensive, unbalanced growth. So China was a little bit more extreme than most other countries that have done that, but it was just basically doing the same thing. Um, so that's point one. Now, point two is yes. We're now sort of at the end of that capital-intensive phase, and you do need to rely more on, on consumption spending. But again, I think there's there's some misapprehensions about how you do this. A lot of people say, well, you need to, the government needs to have consumption-friendly policies. And that, I think, is not really the key thing. What you need to have is household income-friendly policies. You need to have policies that, that give more a bigger barrier share of the income pie to households who will then spend it than to companies. Um, and, you know, part of this relates to social welfare policies, having and better social... fiscal and tax reforms, right? And fiscal and tax reform is a big part of it. Change the incentives of local governments so that they promote service industries, which tend to be much more labor-intensive. This new move to, to VAT, uh, what do you make of this? I mean, just in the last couple of days, we've been reading about this. Okay, well, you're you're venturing into very technical waters, and I, I, I don't know how many of our listeners really want to know about the ins and outs of, like, VAT reform, but... The, the simple version of this is that if you look at the tax structure of the Chinese government, almost all of tax revenues come from taxes and corporations, and a very large proportion of it comes from value-added tax, which in China is really a production tax. In a lot of European countries, they have a more modern version of VAT, which is, a, which is more of a tax on consumption. But in China, it's, it's collected from producers, uh, and it really biases governments to promoting, you know, physical production of stuff. And so what they're trying to do is reform the VAT system so that it becomes more of a real consumption tax. They're trying to bring services, which were previously not in the VAT net, trying to bring them into it. And again, the idea is to, to incentivize governments to promote consumer-oriented businesses and service-oriented businesses because this is where their tax revenue is going to come from. And if that's successful, that's a, that's a good piece of the puzzle. Changing incentives of, of you know government officials who are a big part of the economic development story, I think, is is very important of how you re, part important part of the way of how you rebalance. I think you successfully avoided the weeds there. That's the was good. yeah, it's the best best I can <laughs> that's do. The best you can do. <laughs> Another reform we we hear a lot about is the reform to the hukou system or the the residence permit system, which basically ties a person's um, you know social benefits to right. uh, often the place where they were born or where they, where they grew up. Um, and from a social perspective, it does create tougher conditions for migrant workers. Yep. It separates families, creates left-behind children. And it seems inefficient as it prevents labor yep. from freely moving about to more productive locations. Why doesn't China allow freer movement of labor? And you know, why, despite all the talk over decades now, 
hasn't it actually been able to abolish this system? Yeah, well, I think it's actually not fair to say that this is an impediment to free movement of labor um, because, in fact, labor mobility in China has been extraordinarily high. So what the Chinese system um, has done is it's enabled free movement, movement of labor and prevented movement of dependence. And the basic idea was that you wanted to have workers in the factories on the coast, um, but you didn't want them bringing all their dependence and creating slum cities, as in many parts of developing Asia, or just putting a huge burden on the the healthcare and education systems in these in these all cities. social services, right? Yeah, and the, yeah, so it was a. I, I, you're totally right, Jeremy. It, it created huge social problems and a lot of family separation and anxiety. And I think, from a human perspective, it's it's a very problematic policy. From an economic rationality perspective, I think you have to say it's been pretty successful. Um, but it's, I think, it's definitely at again, it's one of these processes that worked for a while and is clearly past its sell-by date. So there is a goal now to take. So about a third of the urban population in China. Uh, are people who do not have urban hukou. Um, and that's and they basically don't act like urban residents and they don't consume like urban uh, residents and they don't have access to the full you know wealth of urban life and that's a it's an economic problem and it's a human problem on a vast scale. So there is a uh, you know a reform to where the aim is to take of those 260 million people or so who don't have urban hukou to give them urban hukou or hukou-like rights, uh, about, I think, 100 million is the target by 2020. Um, if they can pull that off, that would be, I think, a huge benefit for the families, and it would be a huge step towards a more balanced economy because if you can bring your family and participate in the full social service um, environment of cities, you begin to spend money like an urbanite, and that creates demand for you know, more consumer products and services, and that's what China needs now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so I hope they can pull it off. It's a huge task. And I think what they realized after setting this target is that the fiscal burden on local governments to providing the services, they haven't figured out a way to pay for it. It's it's a real, real problem. Uh, after last November, China changed its infamous one-child policy, allowing parents to have two children. Um, conventional wisdom says that China has a ticking demographic time bomb on its hands. What does China's aging population mean for future growth, and what are the implications for the economic model? Well, I think this may be one instance where conventional wisdom just is not dire enough, because, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is uh, It is a demographic time bomb, and it's really, really serious. So first on the one-child policy, okay, the mythology there is that the one-child policy is what caused China to have a low birth rate and, as a result, this, this ticking time bomb. Actually, most of the decline in the Chinese birth rate occurred in the 1970s before the one-child policy came into effect, and it was a combination of natural factors and, and other policies at the time. The one-child policy was really a, a horrendous case of shutting the barn door after the um, after the horse had fled. Um, it was it imposed a lot of hardships on people because it was enforced in a draconian way, and it was really very intrusive. And it basically served no purpose because China's birth rate was already down. Um, and you can look at other countries like Thailand or Korea, who's had similar declines in the birth rate over the last 25 years or 30 years, 
with no similar uh, uh, family planning policies. So I, I personally think the one-child policy was one of the worst uh, uh, policy uh, uh, decisions that has been made in China in the last 30 years. I'm sure years. Mei Fong but, would agree with you. Uh, but if you look ahead, uh, you know, regardless of that, so here's the simple factoid. So today, China has about six people of working age for every person of retirement age. And that's the same ratio that Japan had in 1980 when it was kind of riding high. In 25 years, China will have two people of working age uh, for every person of retirement age. That's the same as Japan today. So in a 25-year span, China is going to go through the same demographic transition that it's taken 35 years for Japan to go through. And I think, you know, that's one of the demographic... uh, Shift is one of the big problems that Japan has had to face, and it's coming to China. It's coming really soon, and it's coming really fast. Japan comes up a lot in conversations that we have with you. I mean, you did a, a turn on our show some time ago, and you talked about where China was relative to Japan. And I think that we were talking about the 1960s in some of your times. Um, now, though, an- another Japanese decade comes to mind when you talk about Japan, and that's, of course, the, the 90s, the, the so-called lost yeah. decade. Uh, you recently uh, wrote a paper in which you laid out different scenarios for possible futures of the Chinese economy, and the one that you place sort of your highest odds on is that uh, that, that Japan in the '90s scenario. Can you unpack that a bit for us? Yeah. Tell so us I why will, you think I will that that's unpack okay. that, but I will preface it with a caveat, which is that these kinds of historical comparisons are, I think, useful thought exercises, but they're not really, you know, forecasts. And obviously, there are huge differences between China and Japan. Um, So I don't want to push this too hard. But I think the parallels are really interesting and worth thinking about. So um, China in sort of developmental terms and income terms is about the same as Japan was in the early 1970s. It is about the same level of per capita income and is sort of at the same point on the development curve that Japan was then. Demographically, as I've just said, it's more like Japan in the early 80s. And in terms of its financial position, though, it's a lot more like Japan in 1990. You have huge accumulation of uh, corporate debt. A lot of this is clearly not going to be able to be paid back. There's a there's a kind of a an alliance between the state, a, a preferred group of enterprises, which in China is the SOEs, in Japan it was the Keiritsu, and you have financial institutions that are deeply bound up in these relationships. And there's a huge balance sheet problem. There's a huge problem of debt that can't be repaid and a huge interest among all of these parties not to face up to it. So if you look at Japan in the 1990s, their problem was that they had a huge property bubble, asset bubble in the late 80s. Asset prices collapsed. Land prices and stock prices went down by about 75% in a few years. This savaged corporate balance sheets. They couldn't repay their loans. The banks were technically technically insolvent. And, you know, basically because the Japanese government was unwilling to allow this the resolution of these debt issues to be done rapidly, um, they extended the problem. They they offset the losses with a huge increase in government borrowing to finance infrastructure that had no economic value. And you wound up with a country that had very high debt levels, very low growth levels, and basically no escape. Um and I could see a similar thing happening in China. You have huge bit debt buildup in the state-owned enterprises. The government is unwilling um, to slow down 
um, that debt accumulation because basically they have this target of 6.5% growth. We've got to keep going at getting that. And if that means we just have to pile more and more debt into the state enterprises so they can invest in projects that don't generate much return, so be it. Um, and, you know, I see the same kind of institutional resistances to just saying, look, we've got to shake things up, we've got to reform, we've got to reduce the role of the state-owned enterprise sector, and we've got to let more market forces and, and private enterprise rule. Um, so I think, you know, China still has a few years worth of wiggle room. They can still get out of this. And there's an enormous amount of dynamism in the, in the private sector and the SME sector in China, which is really extraordinary. But the, the clock is ticking, and it's, I think it's basically a matter of three or four years to get things right, or China will face the, the prospect of a financial crisis. And I think what will happen in China is that they won't let the financial crisis happen. You won't have sort of a Southeast Asia 1997 type of problem. They'll see it coming, and they'll forestall it by just a huge increase in government spending, government debt. Uh, government bailouts, uh, you, know, you know, hidden bailouts of, of debt-ridden institutions, and you'll wind up in a very similar situation to Japan. High debt, low growth, and, and no escape. Well, the book is called China's Economy, What Everyone Needs to Know by Arthur R. Kroeber. And uh, I, I, like I said, I couldn't recommend it more highly. I, it's, it's, what, it's 10 bucks on Kindle. Uh, you pick it up. It's a, it's a terrific read, and it's incredibly accessible. So I, I want to thank you very much for taking, us, taking the time to join us today. Uh, I want to remind our listeners to check out the Sup China app and subscribe to the newsletter. Sup China offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. So download the app. And check out SupChina.com to subscribe to the newsletter. You can follow SupChina at at SupChina News and check them out on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChina News. So let's move on to recommendations. And as usual, we will begin with Jeremy. What do you have for us this week, man? I'm going to recommend a very slim volume uh, by James Millward, who I think was uh, once your, your teacher. He was, and uh, a partner in crime. We used to jam together and stuff. Great He's guy. George musician, Tan. probably one of the world's leading ex- experts on uh, Central Asian and, stringed, uh, instruments. stringed instruments. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the book is called The Silk Road, a very short introduction, published by Oxford. Um, and it's a very elegant little introduction to a fascinating part of the world. This may be the third Jim Millward book that's been re- recommended on this show. I think we, we, the Eurasian Crossroads has been recommended. Uh, ah, yes, uh, the, yeah, the, the, that's the right. The Brief History of Xinjiang one has been, yeah. Um, yeah, great. Uh, Beyond the Past, which is a little more scholarly. But yeah, Jim, Jim Millward, absolutely terrific guy. Uh, Arthur, why don't you go next? What do you, what do you have for us this week? Uh, well, I'm going to recommend uh, something that kind of combines my own interests with um, uh, uh, economics, but also economic history, uh, but also literature. So it is a great trilogy that's about the Opium War, and it's by an author who lives in Brooklyn, actually, half of the, half the year, Amitav Ghosh. Uh, he's originally from India. Um, and the uh, it's called the Ibis uh, Trilogy, after the name of the boat that sails between India and, and China in the Opium War, uh, Opium Trade years. Uh, the first book, which came out a number of years ago, is called Sea of Poppies, um, and it sort of con- chronicles uh, life in India in the opium-producing areas. second book is called River of Smoke, uh, which I think is actually the best book of the series. It's about an Indian opium trader in Guangzhou 
on the eve of the Opium War. Uh, and it's just a terrific um, uh, chronicle of just how the opium trade really worked and what the human uh, uh, engagements of that were. Uh, but it's also just a wonderful, wonderful uh, human story with many, many layers in it, which I won't reveal because they're just too, uh, too wonderful. And then the final one is called Flood of Fire, um, which kind of wraps up the story and, and sort of brings us to the grisly denouement of the Opium Wars and how the whole thing came crashing down. But what I love about this is that it's a great tale. He's got great stories in there, great characters. Uh, but he also really brings to life the whole sort of economic ecosphere of Asia in the 19th century and reveals to us how how complicated it was and how these networks of trade and and, and just the movement of people were so much more vibrant than we tend to think. We tend to think that globalization is something that happened, you know, 20 years ago. And I think one of the themes of all of Ghosh's work is that, no, globalization is something that's been going on basically since the beginning of time and nowhere more so than in Asia, which was the, the locus of these just incredibly complex and rich uh, trade networks. So if you're interested in history, if you're interested in Asia, if you're interested in economics, if you're interested in literature and, and humanity, that's uh, I, I would recommend that, that trilogy. Just well, I'm interested in all those things except for humanity. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, great. Uh, wow, excellent recommendation. I mean, that's 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 what I'm going to rush out and 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 read. That sounds great. Um, I am going to. I mean, I've been recently packing my books as I get ready to leave Beijing, and so I keep stopping to my wife's chagrin to flip through some old favorites, and you know, I end up sort of sitting on boxes and reading for a little while. Um, so based on on that, I'm I'm going to give an overdue recommendation for a book that really has stayed with me for many, many years since I first read it back in graduate school, like, what, 25 years ago. Uh, the Soul Stealers, the Chinese Sorcery Scare of 1768 by the late, great Philip Kuhn, who passed away very recently. His son, of course, is, is, is the NPR correspondent in Beijing, Anthony Kuhn, a former guest on our show and a good friend. Uh, it's a really exemplary popular history. I mean, it's, again, very accessible history, although it's written by, you know, a, a very eminent historian, tremendously effective vehicle that, that, that kind of takes you from the humblest, illiterate peasant up through the ranks of the bureaucracy uh, to, to the imperial personage himself. Uh, it's uh, just a tour de force in, in, in research, in, in structure, in, in narrative. So uh, if you haven't read it, and I imagine that a good portion of our, our listenership has already read it, but if you haven't, rush out and pick that up. It's in tribute to the late Philip Kuhn, The Soul Stealers. Arthur, once again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today, and best of luck on the book tour and uh, with the sales. And again, pick it up, man, 10 bucks on Kindle. Um, <laughs> buy the print version, please. Uh, okay, no. <laughs> yeah, buy, buy the hardcover, which is something like some absurd $87 or something on Amazon. Yeah, anyway, thank you very much for this opportunity. Jeremy, you want to take us out? The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Gore and me. Jeremy Goldcorn. A big shout out this week to Michelle Wingley, who helped us as we prepped for today's chat. Special thanks this week to Anla Chung and to Amadeo Tumamilo from SubChina. Do drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and see y'all next week. Mm-hmm.